victory is achieved through submission. Our willingness to walk in humility and weakness gives God the opportunity to demonstrate his strength. In the story of Isaiah's suffering servant, God delivered his people not by military might, but by the means of a humble servant motivated by love. In this series, Pastor Lee teaches us that God eventually exalted his servant, which not only afforded us salvation, but also becomes the blueprint for how we overcome oppositions in life, in strength, in humility, and submission. That's what I'm talking about. I hear the excitement like the Falcons had won a game or something. How y'all doing today? <laughs> uh, it is good to see you guys. Um, let's quickly turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read from uh, verses 5 to 11. Sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Reading from verses 5 to 11. It's a lot to cover this morning, and so I just do not want to take too much of your time. It says, make your own attitude, and I'm reading out of the NASB. Okay, that's fine, yeah. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, we just want to give you the honor, the praise, the glory, everything that is ascribed to you. We lift your name on high. We say thank you for bringing us together this morning, for allowing us to participate in fellowship with one another and with you. We know that this is what you have desired since the creation of the garden. And, um, and Father God, we just ask that uh, we are here to, that as we feast on your word, that you will just quicken our spirits to appreciate what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This passage that we have just read is known as the uh, Carmen Christi. It was an early Christian hymn that Paul, um, that Paul took to help the church of Philippi see what it means to walk in humility. Uh, Carmen Christi parallels Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 12, which speaks of the humiliation and the exaltation of the suffering servant, which is what we went over last week. 
Just like uh, Isaiah 53, verse 1, Philippians 2, 6 makes note of the Messiah's divine nature. In Philippians 2, 6, Paul, in making reference to Jesus, says, who existing in the form of God, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Jesus is God. He is God in his very nature, just as the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh. In Isaiah 53, verse 1, it says, in Isaiah 53, verse 1, it says, who has believed what we've heard, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah uses the phrase, the arm of the Lord. That is, Yahweh's arm is an anthropomorphic a demonstration of Yahweh's power and salvation. And when I say anthropomorphic, it is conveying the idea of human body parts associated with God, even though we know that God is not human or that God has body parts. It's just an expression to give us a picture. So Yahweh's arm is an anthropomorphic demonstration of Yahweh's power and salvation. So anytime you see Yahweh's arm, it is a picture of him as the redeemer and deliverer. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 51, verses 9 and 10 in the NAS, NASB. Isaiah 51, verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, go back. Yeah, there you go. In verse 9, it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh, O arm of the Lord, Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Verse 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea as a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So we see the arm of Yahweh not only represents the power of God, but is also a person. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 63, verses 11 and 12, and give it to me in the NKJV. Awesome. They are on it today. They are on it today. I like them. I like them. Whatever we do, do not change out these people. <laughs> Says... Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Verse 12, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name. So, see, so we see again the arm. Notice in both passages that the context is deliverance from Egypt. Israel is the redeemed that crossed the Red Sea. The deliverer is the arm of the Lord, the personal representation of Yahweh in power who overthrew Pharaoh's army. So when Isaiah speaks of the arm of the Lord, the Israelites recall the powerful presence of God who delivered his people from Egypt. This is what is invoked in their minds. 
one more passage, and again, I'm trying to give you this picture in, in your minds of the arm of Yahweh as the one who represents Yahweh's power in deliverance. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10. See? If only the Falcons was just as good as y'all, I'm telling you. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10. And it reads, The Lord has bared his holy arm in sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. The word bear in the Hebrew is the word kasap. Kasap, spelled C-H-A-S-A-P, is... Is, is the word for bear in the Hebrew. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word there is apocalypto. Apocalypto is the same word from where we get the word apocalypse or revelation, like the book of Revelation. Both apocalypto and kasat means to uncover, to lay open what has been veiled or covered up. In other words, it gives the idea of a revealing, an exposure. However, the way that this word is used in the strictest sense implies making one naked as a form of humiliation. At the conclusion of wars in the ancient times, you would have it where the side that lost, specifically the king, would be, would be forced to remove their clothing and parade it as a form of humiliation after facing defeat. In some cases, tying a naked king to the back of a horse and dragging that king around naked. It was, a, it was meant to demoralize the people who served that king and demonstrate that he has been stripped of all power, dignity, and honor. In other words, Isaiah is conveying the extent of the literal humiliation of Yahweh's power of deliverance, which, which, will, be, which will be seen and witnessed. How will it be seen and witnessed? Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul, speaking of Messiah Yeshua, said, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man, and when he had come as a man in external form. The word form there... Is the, word, is the Greek word morphe. Morphe means the outward appearance or shape. Is where we get the word nature. The Messiah existed in the morphe theo, in other words, the form of God. So in his very existence, his very pre-existence, his outward shape, his outward form was God. I don't know what God looks like, but that was his outward appearance. That was his shape. That was his bodily uh, uh, appearance. That was his nature. He was all-powerful and mighty, 
And then the scripture goes on to say that he emptied himself, which is an act of denying himself. We can, we can call it his authoritative restriction of the appropriate rights that is associated with being God. How does he uh, restrict himself? By taking on the morphe doulos, which is the form of a servant. So the former God, still existing as God, now taking on the form of a servant. The form of a slave or a bond servant appearing as a man. This is what the early church called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. It is the idea that Christ, who is one person, has two natures. He has a divine nature in which he is God, and he now also has a human nature in which he is man. And in this case, his nature as a human, he's functioning as a human servant. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says that he humbled himself. I want to, I had a, a, another note here to kind of give an illustration of this humility, but I said, let me bring it home for a lot of us. Um, one of my favorite movies is the movie Coming to America. Have y'all seen it? If you black, you've seen it. <laughs> Matter of fact, if you have not seen Coming to America, your black card has been restricted, has been removed. Your morphe has been denied to you. <laughs> your morphe of blackness has been revoked. <laughs> but in Coming to America, you have uh, this gentleman, right, who is the son of a king. He is the prince. And what does he do? In the search for a bride, he leaves his, 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 his kingly uh, associations, Zamunda, that wonderful fictional African nation where authority works, <laughs> where they understand rules. <laughs> So he leaves Zamunda, this place where he's recognized as the son of a king, where he has people who wait on him hand and foot, where he has nice clothes, nice luxuries, everything that is associated with kingship. Prince, uh, Prince Hakim is incredibly, uh, he has all these things at his disposal. That is his honor. That is his dignity. That's his reputation as the son of a king. What does he do? He, sa he says in the search for a bride, he leaves Zamunda and he comes to United States. Come to United States, right? Not only does he come to the United States, he goes to New York. Not only does he go to New York, he goes to the poorest part of New York where nobody knows that he is the son of a king. And so for that period of time, he has divested himself of all honor, all dignity, all power, anything that would associate him with this royalty. He's no longer seen as the prince of Zamunda. He's seen as a servant in McDonald's. <laughs> McDowell's, right? 
They have the golden arches, we have the arch. <laughs> and he tells his boss at McDowell that he's just the son of a goat herder. So therefore, he's now treated as a goat herder, has no respect in his, his livelihood in Queens. Nothing about him says that he has dignity, has honor, has prestige, or anything that would be associated with being the son of a king. He has taken on a different morphe. Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 3, makes it clear that there was nothing about him speaking of the arm of the Lord that was worth bragging about. He is the very power of Yahweh, but yet the one, the one who delivered Israel from Egypt, but all we can see about him was an unattractive servant. He humbled himself by taking on a human existence. His glory was veiled. He walked in complete obedience to the Father to be the atoning sacrifice for humanity. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why death on a cross? In Isaiah 53 is a, is a controversial chapter uh, for Jewish people, mainly because the identity, mainly because of the identity of the suffering servant. In Orthodox Judaism, they pose that the one who is suffering is the nation of Israel. And that in this text, Israel is suffering on behalf of the nations, and that this is a and this is and that this suffering is fulfilled in the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, and the Holocaust, etc. They feel as if they are cursed by God. Rabbi Tovia Singer, who is one of the most prominent rabbis of the anti-missionary movement for Jewish people, he said this. He said, despite strong objections from conservative Christian apologists, the prevailing rabbinic interpretation, that is the interpretation of the elite of the Jewish minds, is that Isaiah 53 is, 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 ascribes the servant to the nation of Israel who silently endured unimaginable suffering at the hands of its Gentile oppressors. So in their mind, the, the Holocaust is an example of this. The Spanish Inquisition is an example of this. The Crusades is an example of this. The issue with this position is that Isaiah 53 is written using atonement imagery. Isaiah 53 verses 3 and 6 says this, Give it to me, Isaiah 53, 3 and 6. Thank you. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore 
and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace or our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is atonement language. As we look at it, we're seeing a picture of what would have taken place in the atonement when the animals were slaughtered and by which God would now have forgiven Israel for the sins that Israel has committed against God. And this is something that would have taken place once a year. Healing here is not dealing with diseases of the natural body. I know that we tend to use this passage to appropriate physical healing, but this is, but that is completely out of the context of this passage. Atonement has nothing to do with physical healing of the human body. Rather, this healing is, referred to, is referring to the healing from sickness of sin that brought estrangement between covenant partners, Yahweh and Israel, as well as to us by extension. In other words, by his stripes, we, we can now be reconciled because what caused our separation has now been removed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is atonement language. According to the law, atonement is contingent on the sacrifice being without spot or blemish. In other words, the sacrifice cannot have any defects. It must be perfect. And the priest was responsible for presenting a perfect sacrifice. Israel as a nation, according to Isaiah 1 verse 4, was a sinful nation that had forsaken Yahweh. Therefore, Israel as a nation, to the dismay of Rabbi Tobia Singer, does not qualify as an appropriate sacrifice for our transgressions, iniquities, and our strife with God. Secondly, Isaiah is the writer, and therefore the us and the our is in reference to Isaiah's people who are Israel. Israel cannot be its own atonement. Atonement has to be provided for the people. And Isaiah makes this clear because in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is exposed to the glory of God, Isaiah does something that is very familiar for people who get caught in a crime. They tell on themselves. And not only do they tell on themselves, they tell on all the co-conspirators. Isaiah snitched on himself and everybody who was with him. I am, I am sinful and I am part of a sinful people. Israel cannot be its own atoning sacrifice. So why the cross? 
The cross is a place where atonement was made. The deliverer, the arm of Yahweh, the personal representation of Yahweh's power, and the one who can destroy any army, whether the Roman military or any military past, present, and future, didn't come to flex his muscles. He didn't come dressed in superiority or as a highly decorated five-star general. No, he came in submission. He presented himself as the loser, the weak one, the suffering servant, the sacrificial lamb. Before Tupac and Biggie, Jesus was the first one to say, it's me against the world and I'm ready to die. Roman execution was reserved for slaves, non-citizens, the undesirables, and the worst of offenders. Jesus came as a slave. He was not a citizen of this world. He was an undesirable because he was holy, and yet because of our sins placed on him, he was the worst of offenders. Look at the beautiful contradiction. On the cross, the power of God was humiliated. On the cross, the power of God was a humiliated servant. In the natural, how can he be a savior when he appeared to be unable to save himself? The powers of darkness, the rulers of the earth thought that they had, that they had won this battle. They thought they got this one in the bag. Nothing else to see, y'all. The show is over. We can go home now. The one who was a threat to sin has been defeated. That's what they thought in their minds. I want you to understand that this was through willful submission and the presentation of weakness that God was able to demonstrate his victory, his justice for all of us. The atonement was made. He is the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. And as the approved sacrifice, pleasing to Yahweh, God raised him from the dead. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, Paul, Paul goes on to say, For this reason... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name of the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus the name of Yeshua name meaning authority power representative of his person every knee will bow of those who are are in the earth and on the earth and under the earth. And verse 11 says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, the one who was a servant, the one who walked around with having no glory, nothing to, 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 to magnify, nothing to brag about, this Jesus now is going to be called Lord. That is, he is Yahweh and universal king. That to, and this is to the glory of God the Father. He is eternally seated at the right hand of the Father. Not just as God, but also as a human being. Eternally. As proof that he has been slain. Proof that he has been crucified. Proof that he has overcome sin 
and death. What does this mean to, to, for you and me? See, as long as Jesus is, is seated on the throne as both God and man united in one person, we have access to the holy God, and the holy God is unashamed of us in his son. See, he is proof that if we completely surrender ourselves to God's will, nothing can stand in the way of God's victory for you and for me. Also in Christ, there is a place for you. As long as Jesus Christ is seated on the throne, there is no reason that there is no reason that can keep you from experiencing God's love because this was the motivation for the cross in the first place. This was the motivation for his humiliation in the first place. It was love. He represents you eternally, but you got to be united with him. Romans 10 verse 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord would be, will be saved. No one, absolutely nobody is disqualified from his salvation. Doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter how far you think you have fallen. Nothing can disqualify you from being the loved of God. Why? Because on the, at the right hand of the Father is seated one who is both divine and human. So as long as he's divine, you got access to God. As long as he is human, God has access to you. There is no disqualifications. I don't care what the sin is. You can be homosexual and there's a place for you in the kingdom of God because Jesus is on the throne seated at the right hand of the Father representing you. You can be a thief like what I used to do. Emphasis, used to. <laughs> I'm just saying... Because I know some of y'all, when I come to y'all house, the doors are extra locked. <laughs> I am, I, because of what Jesus has done, thieves like me <laughs> have access to the holy God. <laughs> Nothing could prevent, just, go, just think, just pick the biggest thing that you have done in your life. Just the worst thing that you have done that you can imagine that you have done. That thing that you thought of cannot keep you from the love of God so long as the one who is seated at the right hand of God represents you. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, we just come before you thanking you because your word demonstrates that there's nothing that can keep us from you. We thank you, Father God, because of your son, Jesus Christ, who, was, who went to the cross on our behalf, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, has been placed on him. That we are no longer identified according to what we have done, but we're now identified according to who your son is. 
and that now that your son is seated at your right hand, Father God, the word makes it clear that we have access to you and you have direct access to us and that we have an advocate who is at the right hand of you. Father God, we just pray right now for each and every person that is in this room that has yet to know you, that thinks that they have done something that would prevent them from, bring, from being in your presence. Father God, your word has made it clear that atonement has been made for all of us and that there is nothing that can prevent me or anyone in this room from being with you eternally because your son is representing us eternally. So Father God, we just pray in the name of Jesus that you are working on the hearts of each and every person that is here, that if they don't know you, that they will know you. That if they, have, if they haven't experienced you, that they will experience you. And as our eyes are remain closed, if this message speaks to you because of something that you have done, because of who you think you are, because of the deficiencies that you demonstrate in your life, and you need to know Jesus as the one who advocates for you, this is the time in which you can raise your hand and we can pray with you for you to be received as the beloved of God. So if you do not know Jesus, his eyes remain closed and you want to know him, just simply, just simply signify by the raising of your hands. The word has been clear that there is nothing that can prevent you from being in from being loved by God himself because Jesus has done it all. If you don't know Jesus, just signify by raising your hands. Amen, amen. Father God, we just thank you. We offer these, this sermon and our worship to you as a sacrifice of praise. May you be glorified and may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Thank you for your time.